Take a stop and go from Los Lomas down to Moss Landing, and then it clears up and slows down again from Marina to Seaside. Coming from Watsonville, the north and southbound lanes are clear all the way into Santa Cruz. And for weather, it is going to be a high of 72 today and a low of 56 this evening. The rest of the week sitting in the low 70s and high 60s. And now it is time for Planet Watch. And welcome to Planet Watch, big solutions to Earth-sized problems. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman. Joe Jordan is stuck in traffic, but en route as we speak to the radio station, so we'll be having him join us in just a little while. Today on the program, a story of how Native tribes have come together as the water protectors to protest an oil pipeline through tribal lands and where that movement is today. We'll talk with activist and director of the Lakota People's Law Project, Danny Paul Nelson. He's part of the Romero Institute. And we'll talk about the defense of Chase Iron Eyes and what that means for the greater movement for climate justice. If you'd like, you can subscribe to Planet Watch's podcast by going on planetwatchradio.com. And you can also go and support us at patreon.com if you'd like to help us out to get to other stations around the country. We're already heard in four states around the United States, including our home station of Santa Cruz, California. We're heard in Columbus, Ohio, Clay County, West Virginia, and sometimes we're heard in Iowa. So we're very glad to welcome our listeners in other states to Planet Watch. Before we go to our interview with... Daniel, we will have a short roundup, a very short one today, of environmental news with our intern, Tommy Martin. How are you doing, Tommy? Good. Thanks, Rachel. A Canadian federal court of appeals sided unanimously with environmentalists and indigenous groups Thursday in a decision that halts the construction of the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion. The Trans Mountain Pipeline currently transfers oil sands from Ed Edmonton, Alberta, to tank terminals in Burnaby, British Columbia, on Canada's west coast. The expansion project would extend the 715-mile pipeline and nearly triple its flow of tar oil to 890,000 barrels a day. After the owner of the pipeline, Kinder Morgan of Houston, abandoned its plans to build the expansion, the Canadian government stepped in to buy the pipeline for $3.4 billion U.S. dollars. First Nations groups, environmentalist groups, and the city of Vancouver filed the legal challenge in 2016 and had already suffered more than a dozen losses in court. The decision requires the government to properly consult with indigenous groups, and required, which is required by law. It, al it also requires the government to address the impact. <laughs> excuse me. It requires the government to address the impact of tanker traffic on an endangered orca population. Most of the oil from the Trans Mountain Pipeline currently heads to the U.S. through a spur pipeline, but supporters of the expansion argued it would it would open Asia as a second market. So that's a very uh, connected story to the one we're going to be covering later in the program uh, where people have pointed out the impacts of fossil fuels on the water, the air, and other creatures living around it. So we'll be talking about that in just a little bit. Um, first, I wanted to also remind you that later in the program, we are going to be hearing from a couple people who are part of the Rise for Climate Justice, a big event happening around the world, just a few days from now. We'll be talking with a couple of the organizers of that event in California and finding out what's happening in the rest of the world. So that's something to look forward to. 
Daniel Paul Nelson is our guest today. He's deputy director of the Dakota People's Law Project. He has over 15 years of experience as a deputy director, organizer, researcher, and writer. And it doesn't say here, but he's also a songwriter. <laughs> he holds a BA in political theory from Harvard and an MA in social science from the University of Chicago. In 2004, a group of grandmothers in Lakota country, an area comprised of nine Indian reservations in North and South Dakota, asked them to investigate and help them prevent South Dakota's Department of Social Services from removing their grandchildren from their families. The investigation uncovered uh, that drugging and routine patterns of physical and mental abuse of Native children were leading to high levels of youth suicide. These atrocities were in direct violation of the Indian Child Wel Welfare Act. Most recently, this project got deeply involved in the protest against the Dakota Access Pipeline. Before we go to our guest, we're going to hear a short video, a little audio from that video, produced by the Romero Institute, the host organization for the Lakota People's Law Project. We'll go to that video now and be right back with Denny Paul Nelson. I need to report um, an assault. There are militia-style police firing at point-blank range with high-powered mace. Yeah, if there's if there's police there, then it has... The police are the ones attacking innocent, unarmed okay. people. We have elders here. We have children here. We have all ages here. Nobody is armed except for the police. Who protects the people from the police? My name is Chase Ironize. I grew up on the Standing Rock Reservation and attended college at Sitting Bull College and then at the University of North Dakota. I obtained bachelor's degrees in political science and Native American studies and proceeded to go to law school. I have run for the United States Congress. North Dakota and our country is at a great, critical time. Chase Iron Eyes. You are a prominent voice in the world of activism, and you did a lot of good out at Standing Rock, and I know that that good is not being seen by everyone, because as it stands right now, you are facing charges that could land you in prison and away from your children for six years. I'm being charged with inciting a riot and criminal trespass uh, because I did a couple of live feeds inviting activists, media, inviting anyone who would bear witness to that level of militarization. So you were inviting people to be there to support, to be witness. Somehow that was construed as you inviting people to come for the purpose of violence. But no riot happened. We have incited nothing but peace and prayer and dignity. There is only the stand that we make for peace. I'm being targeted. It was very clear from the moment that I walked up to that police line. One of the officers asks for me by name. And he said, if you don't call those people off that hill, we're going to hold you personally responsible for anything that happens. I had to explain to him that I'm not the chief of those Indians, so to speak. I can't command anybody to come off that hill, but what I could do is relay a message. Mm -hmm. And they explained that they considered the land that, that we were on to be private property. That land is ours. There is no clear title 
Many of those arrested are Lakota, many descending directly from those who signed those sacred covenants that we call treaties. This is, this is the story that we need to tell. My name is Dan Sheehan, and I am the Chief Defense Counsel for Chase Iron Eyes, the only person charged out of 843 people with inciting the riot or the insurrection against the, the Dakota Access Pipeline. The entire petroleum industry in the Trump administration is trying to make an example out of Standing Rock to show that they can crush the opposition to any one of these pipelines and to try to intimidate everybody around the country and indeed around the world. And that's why they are characterizing the opposition as an uprising of anti-Christian, religiously driven, indigenous jihadist terrorists. And Trump is now issuing executive orders, ordering the opening up of all the Indian reservations in the country to oil drilling and uranium exploration and coal mining and also the public parks. He's now issued orders to allow drilling and timber cutting. He views all of the national parks in, in Indian reservations as just a reserve for material for the corporations to make money. You are such a beautiful nation of such intelligent, innovative, humans, yet we are always at odds. One has to, at some point, ponder the possibility that it's the way our nation has been founded. You're so right on point. Our country was founded on expropriation, subjugation, genocide, slavery. We have to move on from there and realize that we are connected, yeah. that our liberation is tied up together. One of the most meaningful memories that I have of Standing Rock is when the veterans arrived. What I see in that moment is soldiers who very likely have realized that they were bamboozled into yes. killing foreign people for their oil. And here they are now fighting against big oil to come back to our yes. native brothers and sisters to say, We fought you. We took your land. We signed treaties that we broke, and we have come to say that we are sorry. We are at your service, and we thank you for this. Standing Rock was the beginning of an international spiritual monument that lives in our hearts and in our minds. This is why we are traveling wherever we can to spread this message. The, the enemy isn't the white man or the United States government. The enemy is these values perpetrated by capital, division, fear. That's the enemy. We, we are brothers in the same struggle. The sooner we realize that, the better. If we don't realize that, then that's at our peril. What is the action that you're asking people to take? We're asking people to text the word Lakota, L-A-K-O-T-A, to the number 64336. You'll get a link to sign the petition, or you could go right to LakotaLaw.org and join 42,000 other people who've said by their voice and their signature that they expect Morton County in North Dakota to drop every single charge against every single water protector.
but we still have Native Americans left in this country to be arrested for trespassing. An excerpt of a video from the Romero Institute's Lakota Law Project, People's Law Project. And from that project, we have Danny Sheehan uh, Nelson, who is the son of Danny Sheehan, the lawyer who argued, uh, among other cases, he's been involved with the Karen Silkwood case, as well as the Iran-Contra scandal. So um, a very historic family to come from. Daniel, thank you for being here. Daniel Paul Nelson. It's a privilege, Rachel. Thank you for having me. That's a really uh, moving video just to listen to and to see as, as well. Um, it reminds us a, a very short time ago, I think it was only maybe a year now, um, all of these events unfolded at Standing Rock where you had tribes from all over the country. Could you tell a little bit about what galvanized that moment? And, you know, I know that there's a long story involved with Chase Iron Eyes and what happened there, but if we could back it up a little and just remind ourselves what happened there there was a moment in time that seems to have ripples to now. Yeah, it was an extraordinary event, uh, Rachel. Um, you know, I've been organizing at Standing Rock for about six years. I was there in 2012 when we put together a foster care and adoption summit down in Rapid City. And so I was collaborating with tribal council members at Standing Rock on that project. So I've, I've kind of witnessed, you know, the better part of a decade of activism and organizing out there at that reservation. And it's extraordinary the way that you have these peaks and valleys of attention around the world to Indian country. 95% um, of the time, no one's paying much attention really at all to these communities. Standing Rock was, I think, the third poorest community in the country last time I checked. Uh, and yet there are also these incredible moments where the world pays attention to what's happening there. Uh, there's, of course, a reservoir of sympathy for indigenous people, certainly among liberals, people who are... are they're aware of the incredible injustice that has taken place across the world towards indigenous communities in this country especially. Uh, so you get these moments where all of a sudden everyone is awake to what's going on uh, in Indian country. And that's what happened, of course, in 2016. Uh, one of my colleagues now and a, and a friend of mine for the past six years, her name is Phyllis Young. She was on tribal council in 2012. She was one of the organizers of the Ocheti Sakoi camp uh, at Standing Rock in 2016. She was right at the center of all that organizing that was going on. But essentially what happened was, you know, this company, Energy Transfer Partners, uh, major conglomerate, uh, you know, Rick Perry, who is now our energy secretary, was sitting on the board of Energy Transfer Partners at that time. Donald Trump had significant investments in that company. So you have this incredible kind of array of different uh, powerful people, uh, you know, making their money through the sale of oil. They had initially intended to put that pipeline just north of Bismarck, which is the capital of North Dakota. It's about 85% white. Uh, a decision was made to move that down to immediately adjacent to the Standing Rock Reservation. It's not clear to us exactly why that was done, but it certainly seems to involve race uh, and the fact that certain stakeholders in the Bismarck area didn't want that pipeline to be just north of their community, which means the water, of course, flows south. So if there was some kind of a break, it would be affecting that city uh, significantly. So. Instead, they put it, I mean, literally a stone's throw from the edge of the Standing Rock Reservation. It's about an hour south of Bismarck. So, they, so the decision was made to put it there. Uh, and, you know, it was, an, it was a native-led movement from the beginning. So they were residents of Standing Rock that, that, you know, were upset about this. They felt that it was a violation of their civil rights. Uh, they felt that they had 
a right to have much more authority and say in whether or not this pipeline was placed in that area. They were, of course, ignored. They were not respected in that desire. Um, and so, really, there was a moment when the women uh, breached the fence and kind of put their bodies on the line. That occurred, uh, in, I think, in the, the summer of 2016. And that's the kind of first catalyst that occurred there where all of a sudden the world started to pay attention. And of course, Amy Goodman from Democracy Now! was there shortly after, and the dogs were uh, unleashed, so to speak, sicked on protesters. They weren't unleashed, actually, but they were used to, to, as, as tools of violence against the protesters who were there. That was the second, I think, catalyzing moment when the world really started to tune in. Uh, so it was just it was a, a series of steps, of escalating steps, that led to... In December, um, the Obama administration deciding that this was this pipeline was not going to go through. You may recall that the Obama administration shut down the Keystone XL pipeline uh, some time ago. So this was the second time that the Obama administration responded to the environmental movement saying, listen, enough is enough. Climate change is real. You know, native communities can't be zones for, you know, the, the creation of infrastructure that is, that is damaging and poisonous to people. Uh, so... You know, Trump then, of course, comes in in January and reverses Obama's decision. And so now we've effectively lost that campaign. So the oil is now flowing under Lake Oahe, which is the river that it's the Missouri River that feeds the, the, the only source of drinking water for the Standing Rock tribe. And it feeds millions of people downstream as well. Uh, it, it's a major environmental um, uh, problem that we have in our nation. Uh, oil inf infrastructure, fossil fuel infrastructure, it's contaminating not only the atmosphere, but also the water and the land. And so, unfortunately, we have not succeeded at preventing that pipeline from being put in, but it did, in fact, awaken the world. And, you know, it's now put Standing Rock on the map as one of the major thought leaders around the world when it comes to fighting pipelines and protecting water. And this is <clears throat> not going to stop right with this one story. There's going to be other stories. We just heard one from Tommy earlier about one um, similar. Kinder Morgan, that's right. Yeah, another uh, protest likely that's that's going to be working its way through the courts and um you have a particular person that your organization has been defending and and i wanted to talk to you about why um chase iron eyes has been such a galvanizing figure and why his case might matter to other similar mm -hmm. protests um but before we go to your answer i wanted to welcome joe jordan and um speaking of fossil fuels you were stuck with a bunch of other cars on the freeway except i wasn't running on fossil fuels <laughs> when you're in a traffic jam with an electric car there's no pollution coming out of your <laughs> car um you can feel stuck but at least uh, vindicated by so by the way uh, everybody uh, you can email us at radioplanetwatch at gmail.com and interact with our guest uh, now and in the next part of the hour here and in between shows. And if you just joined us, this is Danny Paul Nelson. He is with the Romero Institute, which has been um, very active in defending uh, people in the Lakota community legally, which is always important. We just talked about, you know, a legal battle and also these huge, it's really a David and Goliath story, which is nothing new to Native Americans in our country. But this one seemed to really um, show that. You had on one side the oil companies, you had the police, um, the National Guard from North Dakota. Private uh, military security. And private um, entities with guns defending this, pri this property of theirs Tiger against, the, yeah. against the people of this country. That's a pretty scary thing to watch. You it, know? it was amazing. 
Yeah. The, the, the powers arrayed against the Standing Rock community and ultimately their allies who came in from all over the world to support them was really quite striking. I mean, Trump's involvement alone is uh, almost unique to see that kind of sparring taking place between two executive branches, just one after the next. Um, it, it, was, it, it was not easy for us to confront all of that and, you know, we were not able to prevail ultimately, but we still made a tremendous amount of progress in terms of raising consciousness. So. And do you think this could happen again um, somewhere else? I mean, is it going to pop up next in this other place? I guess this is in Canada that that story is taking place. Or are we having a moment of reorganization of these various uh, interests trying to slow down or stop these right. pipelines? Well, so, you know, state legislatures across the country have been collaborating with conservative politicians at the federal level to pass legislation that would limit the right to protest. So uh, something like 30 states either did pass or tried to pass states that would that would constrain free speech. Uh, some of them went so far as to try to pass laws where if protesters were hit by automobiles, the driver wouldn't be held accountable. So some pretty hostile legislation that's been kind of working its way through the system. We are doing a lot now to raise awareness about that. We've got a, a petition circulating to Trump uh, to push back against him and his allies. Um, so, so, you know, the fight is on, certainly. You, you ask about other incidents that could, that could occur like this. The Keystone XL pipeline, one of the first things that Trump did in addition to reversing Obama's decision about DAPL, the Dakota Access Pipeline, is that he also reversed Obama's decision about Keystone. So right now, the plan is to break ground, I think, in January. So TransCanada, a Canadian company, is going to be building that pipeline soon unless we resist it effectively. So we actually have another organizer, her name is Madonna Thunderhawk, she's an amazing Native American activist, a colleague of mine and Chase's, Chase Iron Eyes. Uh, Madonna lives at Cheyenne River, which is two hours south of Standing Rock. So that, the course, the current course of the Keystone XL pipeline goes right through Cheyenne River. So we actually expect another fight to occur, another struggle. Um, just two hours from Standing Rock. And that could be happening uh, as early as spring of next year. Let's go back to the question I asked just before I reintroduced Joe, which is <clears throat> Chase Iron Eyes is an iconic figure. He ran for Congress. He's pretty well known. He, he appears a lot on television. Um, why is he a symbol of this fight, and, and why did you choose to be, you know, engaged in his defense as an organization? He's an extraordinary young man. Um, so Ch I met Chase six years ago when we were working on the foster care and adoption issue uh, in Lakota country, but he was doing uh, sacred land activism. He was trying to get back a piece of land in the Black Hills called Peshla, which according to the Lakota is their genesis spot. It's where they were birthed. Uh, and it was going to be auctioned to the highest bidder by a, a white landowner. And so Chase just shot a video of himself, put it up online. And overnight, there were millions of people that were paying attention and the Special Rapporteur for Indigenous Issues at the UN got involved, James Anaya. Uh, and so I met him in that context uh, and have been working with him ever since. But he is a luminary. He is, uh, he's got a prophetic personality. You know, he's, a, he's an attorney. Um, so he's well-trained, which is not common in, in, in the, the community where he comes from. He's one of the more well-educated people there. Uh, but he's got, he's got a, um, a commitment to the work that he was taught to do by his by his parents and his, his relatives, he comes from, you know, the activism of the 1970s. So, you know, his, both of his parents were actively involved in the effort, the Red Power effort back in the 70s. 
uh, he's, you know, got a certain sympathy for the American Indian movement and all that really important work that was done back then. So in a sense, he's an extension of that, but he's a softer iteration of it. He's not, he doesn't, you know, there's no talk of violence. This is a nonviolent movement that, that he's been involved in, that I've been involved in. And I actually want to highlight how important I think Standing Rock is in the continuum of nonviolent actions that have taken place in our history. You know, uh, of course, during the 50s and the 60s, we had stuff going on in the African-American community that just, you know, lit up the entire world and set a precedent and created models for us. But this is the Native American community adopting many of those same principles. You know, uh, the discipline required on the part of water protectors to not fight back physically uh, with violence in the face of the aggression that we dealt with in the, in the winter of 2016, I think maybe some of your listeners remember the incident at Backwater Bridge where, you know, this was November 22nd when they unleashed the water cannons in something like zero degree weather. <laughs> one, one young woman had all the soft tissue in her forearm destroyed. Today, even in Bismarck, the narrative among average North Dakotans is that she blew up her own arm with some kind of a, a gas canister, a bomb or something. So they're doing two things at once. First of all, you know, moving responsibility away from law enforcement for a physical injury that now has maimed this young woman, but then also making the false claim that she was trying to execute violence against law enforcement. There's no evidence whatsoever that there was ever any, any you know, violent acts taken by water protectors. There were, in fact, provocateurs. You mentioned the private security, private military security companies that were active out there, including Tiger Swan. You know, they, they, it's documented they had provocateurs who were in the camps trying to instigate different kinds of behaviors that would then get water protectors in trouble. I mean, that, that's amazing. You know, that, that does harken back to COINTELPRO and to the kind of actions that were taken against Martin Luther King and the nonviolent movement then. So anyway, this, this was a major event. I think uh, we will not forget it anytime soon. And to, to piggyback on what you were just saying about the tactics being used as far as what he uh, was charged with, it seems like um, ever since 9-11, we've had this idea that people protesting somehow could be labeled as terrorists and with very flimsy kinds of evidence against them that, that you know, somehow they're the people who are protesting somehow the problem right. and the danger instead of um, the other side. This is, you know, it goes back to Charlottesville where we had the president say, well, both sides are to blame. Wait a minute. <laughs> You're equating anti-fascist protesters with terrorists. Uh, so that that word can carry with it real legal consequences, right? Absolutely. So is that what he was charged with? Well, he was so... Tiger Swan, we, we got access to internal memos that were released by The Intercept, um, which is a great progressive investigative news company, um, showing that Tiger Swan in their internal memos were referring to water protectors as religiously motivated um, you know, they, they were comparing them to jihadist terrorists. That's what they were doing in their effort to kind of create strategy and, and formula for responding to them. It's, wor it's, it's worth noting that the hostility between water protectors and law enforcement really hiked up the moment that Tiger Swan appeared on the scene. You know, they had, a, they had an economic interest in stoking the, the tension. And so, you know, they were making millions off of this, this protest effort. And the more kind of violent and hostile the entire relationship between law enforcement and the protest movement was, the better off they were financially. But it's also, I'm sure, ideological. They just, these are Navy SEAL type people who have come from the oil fields of Iraq where they've been pursuing the economic interests of the United States at the expense of a, an indigenous population there. Uh, they're bringing those ideologies back to the United States and teaming up with 
the oil industry with the support of the executive branch. It's a very pernicious kind of formula. It's also sad and ironic because most of those people, it's possible that they just couldn't get work in other capacities. And so this felt familiar and like they were qualified to do this. Well, we, Maybe another pawn in the whole scheme we, we as need well. To, we need to put the blame where it belongs, and that is on, you know, a federal government back in 2003 that was, you know, creating unnecessary wars around the world. And, and it know, goes on today. It's still happening. Yes, it does. And likely continues um, unless something drastic happens to change the dynamic there in Afghanistan and Iraq. Interesting that you should draw this parallel between um, those two events. Hadn't really thought about where they intersect, but they definitely did there. And so part of the reason we brought you on today, Danny Paul, and, and this topic, and, and thanks for coming and joining us, uh, was that there was a recent major legal victory I listened to the show as I was driving, so I don't think we've quite got there yet, but tell me if we have, uh, where Chase Iron Eyes had all charges on him dropped legally. And, um, well, is he the only one, and, or is he the main one? And, you know, what, what is the significance of this? What's the situation? There are 15 people that, that, that are still facing charges. Chase had his felony charges dropped, and that's in large part because of the pressure that was brought to bear on the state's attorney by our organization and other allies. So there's been a, a campaign running ever since the video that you played at the beginning of the show, Rachel, was first released, which was about a year ago. Um, so we are celebrating now the fact that Chase's law license is no longer in jeopardy. He will not face prison time. Um, but, uh, but there are 15 other people who are still dealing with charges. Um, you know, Chase was unique. As he described in that video, he was targeted by law enforcement. They came to him and said, if you don't disperse this, you know, this camp, we're going to throw the book at you and hold you personally responsible for everything that's going on here. That's, a, that's an attack on First Amendment rights. It's a special kind of breach uh, that we felt that it was important for us to confront. Um, it's also true that he took his stand on treaty land. And so all the, all the area around Standing Rock where all of these events took place is all land that was never ceded by the tribe. So back in 1877, the United States discovered gold in the Black Hills and decided, well, we're just going to take a bunch of land back now. <laughs> Even though there was a treaty signed in 1868 that prohibited that and, and all this land was set aside permanently for the native tribes. So you have, the, you have gold discovered, you have land then stolen back, and then years later, you know, without any kind of proper negotiation with the tribes, you have now oil pipelines being driven down their throat. So that, that, that history is very important to understand the context of it. Um, you know, but you asked about Chase's trial. I mean, we, we were pursuing what's called a necessity defense in his trial. So we were preparing to go to court to make a necessity defense, which is an important meme within the environmental movement. There are other protesters around the country who are either trying to use the necessity defense or being allowed to use it. And it basically argues, I had to take these actions because the alternative was so pernicious, right? And so, you know, we, we, are, we are arguing that climate change is a existential threat to the, to the world. And if, you know, <laughs> engaging in peaceful protests is a lesser evil than, than allowing climate change to continue. In his case, it was also about uh, his tribe's only water supply. Uh, and we had one third argument that we were preparing to make too, which involves civil rights. The fact that the pipeline was moved from a predominantly white community down to a native community is a violation of the civil rights of the people living at that reservation. Hmm. And you didn't get to make any of those because it, the charges were dropped. Do Correct. you think there was a reason um, the charges were dropped instead of it going to trial? Well, we were prepared to go to trial. We wanted to make those arguments. We wanted to set these precedents. 
of course, we were always dealing with that tension inside of us about not wanting Chase to go to prison. And so had we been able to make those arguments, there would have been a risk that he, that an all-white jury <laughs> in North Dakota would have convicted him of some, some crime. Not that he committed any crimes, but this justice is political. You know, it's not a place where you can expect justice necessarily. So it, it's a mixed bag. You know, we, we wanted to go to court and make those arguments, but we're not upset about the fact that his felonies were dropped, his charges were dropped. That's a good thing. One of the images I remember very distinctly uh, was referred to in that video, which is when um, veterans came in and made an apology to the Native Americans. And this wasn't just one tribe. It wasn't just Standing Rock. There were tribes from all over that the country and the world who started to come in. Mm -hmm. That was a powerful moment. Can you tell us a little more about what happened there? I just saw, you know, little bits of video, but the little I saw, you know, stunned me. It was a seemed like a historical moment. Our government hasn't necessarily apologized, but you have people who have put their lives on the line for our country making an apology on behalf of other veterans. It was one other quality that this movement had that is historic in nature, the way that the veterans came out. I mean, there were... <laughs> something like 5,000 of them or something. Some very large number of veterans came out. And, and under what context did they come? Were they supportive? Are they just being there for safety backup? What were they going to do there? I'm really curious. Like, what was the thought? Because I remember there was some controversy. Some veterans were saying, no, don't go. And Right. So how would, did that come about? Yeah. Well, and, and there's a veteran show that comes on later this oh, afternoon. Really? <laughs> it might be really interesting to have them yeah. respond to what they thought about mm -hmm. all that. I mean, it's, I think it was, it, the movement was messy, of course. There were all kinds of strains of discourse taking place and different strategies being pursued. One of the things I'm most proud of the movement for is that we managed to keep things together and not make any major mistakes during that time because there was no leader. It was all very democratic. So that, it occurred spontaneously, I think, but, you know, part of it was that these, these water protectors were vulnerable. There was this sense on the part of certain veterans out there that these people need protection they need warriors to come out and stand with them not to visit violence on the on law enforcement or tiger swan or what have you but at least to to come and stand strong and exhibit at least the potential of defending them if something got even worse or whatever i think that was part of it um but you know west clark jr was one of the leaders of that so he's of course the son of a former presidential candidate and a very important general um so all that symbolism was quite significant. I think. I think in the in the video that you sh that you, the audio that you played, that was Crow Dog is a very famous uh, Native American leader. Wes Clark was apologizing to him in that in that scene in that ceremony. Sitting immediately to the right of Crow Dog was Phyllis Young, who's my colleague, and was the kind of the tribal liaison for the entire camp. So you had these elders, you know receiving Wes Clark and his vets and allowing him to apologize in that context, extraordinary. You know, I mean, definitely the only time in history that something quite like that has occurred, I'm sure. And all over this threat of an oil pipeline for people's water. If you just joined us here on Planet Watch, I'm Rachel Ann Goodman with Joe Jordan, and we're talking with Daniel Paul Nelson. He uh, is the director of the People's Lakota People's Law Project under the Romero Institute. He's also the son of Daniel Sheehan, the lawyer who has been involved in some watershed, watermark cases, including Karen Silkwood and the Iran-Contra scandal that he was part of investigating. So it's a, a long lineage you come from of people fighting for justice in the law. Amazing. And, and, and folks out there, you can email us at radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. 
Still got 20 minutes left in the hour, so uh, be great to hear from you with your thoughts and questions. And, and comments. what do you think? Do you think that we have a chance in this era where um, it seems like the major powerful forces are arrayed against the people? We outnumber those forces, but we don't have the same uh, money, guns, power, <laughs> legal arguments, it seems. Are we uh, poised here for another showdown in this country like we had during the 60s over civil rights? Are we going to have another one over fossil fuel location? It seems like in California we're trying to fight back legally against drilling. And Offshore. Yeah. We just passed, I think, a law that might protect us here in one state. But again, we're trying to do it piece by piece instead of as a unified whole. And I don't know the answer. I'm just curious what people think and what you think if we're... If we're outgunned and outnumbered, not outnumbered, but outpowered, um, mm -hmm. where does the power levers, just our sheer force hmm. of, of putting ourselves against the wheels of progress, or, or hmm. what happens here? Well, I, I guess I would start, Rachel, by saying that democracy is continues to be an experiment. I mean, there's, there's, no, there's never any guarantee that we're going to be able to maintain this very fragile balance of power that exists within our country, you know. It's not an overstatement to say that we've seen fascistic expressions of fasc fascism, fascist sentiment coming out of Washington over the past two years. I mean, um, you know, Trump is not a democratically minded individual. And the fact that he was able to win the presidency means that we're dealing with some pretty strong anti-democratic realities in this country. So we have to be, you know, I don't know. I, some people are speculating, for example, about the possibility of violence if... if uh, you know, from Trump supporters if this Congress is thrown out and a Democratic Congress is put in or what have you. I mean, those threats are always there. You know, and when you have people engaged in demo demagogic speech, the way that Trump does, Trump is a demagogue. You know, he, he speaks in language that is designed to, you know, um, appeal to the emotional and the instinctual natures that people have. Um, that is an anti-democratic phenomenon, and it's definitely a threat to our civil society. But I, but I, I am confident. I, I believe that our democracy is strong. I think that, you know, um, there will be a strong reaction against what we're seeing out of the executive branch right now. I think eventually we'll recover uh, the kind of mm, civility of, of discourse, and you know, um, we'll start to treat one another differently. Right now, we're persecuting immigrants. We're there's a lot of uh, scapegoating that's been going on. I think I think a lot of people in this country recognize that, and there'll be a healthy reaction. So I, I'm I'm optimistic overall. Yeah. And uh, I should bring up a couple of things that Danny Paul has been involved in that are more in the fiercely positive direction here. I mean, there's all this horrible stuff going on that we can talk about, but. You know, rendering oil irrelevant would be a good part of the solution here. And uh, by using green power, he's actually part of an or another organization around here called Green Power. Uh, NGO. NGO, non-governmental non organization. And they are working on the Monterey Bay Community Power. He, he has been a hero going out and getting all these communities in this whole tri-county region to sign up uh, for that uh, to become partnering uh, jurisdictions. Um, and then the other thing uh, with, uh, let's see, I was Green going the rest? to... 
Yeah, yeah, greening the res. <laughs> Danny is involved with greening the res, the reservation. And tell us a little bit about what's going on up there. Uh, what one Native American told me it was he, they call it red green power, red green power. But tell us about that. Thanks for the question, Joe. Um, so I'll just start by saying that because I think probably most of your listeners are from this region. We, we do have a project here in Monterey Bay area called Green Power. And for the past two years or so, we've been supporting uh, the spread of renewable energy here in this region. And so we have had a partnership with the Catholic Diocese, helping churches go solar. We've also been doing advocacy work, like you said, to expand the scope of the Community Choice Energy Program here. And that did work. We were able to, um, to do most of our organizing in, in Latino uh, communities, so the Salinas Valley, for example, and also the city of Salinas. Uh, to give a couple of examples, we wanted to make sure that that this new energy agency uh, was uh, didn't only exist for white affluent communities, but also for communities of color where uh, there's not as much opportunity to participate in this kind of uh, this kind of work. Uh, but just to give a 15-second summary of what community choice is, I don't know if your listeners are aware, but right now um, everyone's power in the Monterey Bay region is now 100% uh, carbon-free. And it's not being provided by PG&E predominantly. It's being provided by Monterey Bay Community Power, which is a government-run nonprofit entity uh, that has replaced the investor-owned utility, PGE, as the kind of primary provider of power for the area. This is a movement that's kind of sweeping across California. It exists as, a, as an option for communities in seven different states around the country. Uh, but California has really been leading the pack in terms of using community choice as a tool for climate action and for the achievement of renewable portfolio standards. So anyway, everybody here has got, got something to be excited about. Um, and by the way, SB 100 just passed the state ledge a couple of days ago, you know, declaring that by 2045, uh, California's got to be 100% renewable. So we're leading the country uh, when it comes to this topic. But I, I mention those things in part because that's how I developed the competence necessary to then do renewable energy advocacy out at Standing Rock. You know, the DAPL movement kicked off in the middle of our environmental work here in California. And suddenly we found ourselves in the middle of a native-led movement. And so you're right. It can't just be about fighting. It can't just be about reaction. We have to be looking for the positive solutions. Uh, and so that's what we're doing. We're working with the Standing Rock Tribal Council uh, and other stakeholders out there to figure out how to transition Standing Rock from 70% dependence upon coal, which is what the entire state of North Dakota uses, over to renewables. And so we're looking at all the big, the major building clusters at the reservation and thinking about how we can transition them to solar. We're actively fundraising right now to figure out how to get that infrastructure created. But it, it really feels good to not just be involved in a struggle, but also to be thinking about the, posit the positive alternatives. That's yeah. a wonderful thought. Um, we, we only have a little bit of time left, but um, what's the future ahead for the Romero Institute and the Dakota People's Law Project? What are the, besides the greening of the res, what are some other goals you have? Well, we, um, that's being fleshed out right now, just having kind of completed this, uh, this work to prepare for Chase Ironizer's trial, we're definitely having a moment of a pivot. Uh, but I would say that we, we're, we're in dialogue right now with the Archdiocese of San Francisco about the possibility of providing some support to them in relation to going solar. Uh, I sit on a ad hoc committee that advises the Catholic Conference of Bishops on environmental matters. So we have an interfaith organizing agenda here in California that we're going to continue with. We're not a Catholic organization, but of course Pope Francis is an amazing environmentalist <laughs> who has published this book called Laudato Si, which, you know, I mean, 
much of the world is Catholic, and if we can figure out ways to, to get large numbers of people to make the transition to, to green living, that's going to be what's required. So we have that as a practical uh, tool in our kit. But uh, as far as Lakota People's Law Project, I mean, Rachel, really, we, we, I mean, in addition to keeping eyes on other pipeline projects that are going on, for example, the Keystone Pipeline out there, at Cheyenne River, we're, we're interested in solar. We're interested in, you know, the Standing Rock Reservation is, is ranked fifth in the country for wind and solar potential. Mm. So there's a ton of electricity that's just not being leveraged that could be. And if Standing Rock can become, you know, it's already a thought leader with respect to the environment. But if it can become more than just a, a pipeline fighter and it can actually develop companies and projects designed to help other tribes go go green, that would be a phenomenal legacy for the for the No Dapple movement, I, I would say. So that's on our agenda, too. Well, I want to thank you for coming in. It's really been a pleasure to talk to you and a great uh, update for what's happened at the Standing Rock Reservation and all of the story of that movement. So we will love to check back in with you in a later date, find that's, out what's going on. That sounds good. I really enjoyed it. Thank and you, everybody thank you. around Santa Cruz, uh, Danny Paul is also a very gifted musician and plays guitar <laughs> and sings songs that he wrote every now and then. So kind of you to say that, Joe. Thank catch you. his act at some, point. at some point. That's yes. true of Rachel, too, incidentally. Yes. <laughs> I keep that under a barrel. Thank you so much. So we're excited to have Martha Hawthorne with us on the line. Hi, Martha. Okay. Hi there. Can you hear me? Absolutely. And I'm so glad you could join us. You're part of the Rise for Climate Justice Project, and that's a big event that's coming up uh, in not only the Bay Area, but all over the world. Can you tell us a little bit about the event and what its aims are? Well, first of all, we are very excited. It's only six days away, and we're expecting lots of people to become be coming to San Francisco because we are hosting the key global action, the action that the eyes of the world will be upon us. Uh, the occasion is the uh, politicians and corporations are going to be meeting a few days later next week on September 12th for a big climate action summit. Now, this is um, politicians and, and leaders who are doing something to address the climate crisis but are clearly not doing enough and not doing it fast enough. So the point of September 8th uh, is a mobilization, as you said, around the world to tell our leaders we are very concerned this is a crisis now and we need to confront the fossil fuel industry, for example, that's polluting our air, dirtying our water, and also corrupting our political system. So, Martha, the I wish you'd really been able to hear uh, earlier, we've been talking for the past hour about the Standing Rock uh, protest against the DAPL pipeline. And we also have another organizer of the RISE event on the line here from Santa Cruz County, Christian Jensen um, Nielsen, um, who I'll bring on, and you guys can talk to each other. So, Kristen, welcome to Planet Watch. Well, hello there, Rachel and Joe. And Thank Martha, you so much. who's another organizer, is also oh, on the Martha. phone. Yeah, oh, Martha. Um, yeah, I'm not an organizer. I'm just a lifelong um, uh, environmental educator and person that has been involved as an activist in many issues. Right. Just for clarification. But she's getting lots of folks to go up to San Francisco next, next weekend, and uh, maybe we'll connect up there. So, Great, uh, Joe. Yeah, so what's the plan, uh, Kristen? What are you going to do when you get there? What What are you hoping to accomplish by going? Great, great. Well, I'm not sure what Martha has discussed with you at all, 
Um, but, um, you know, the Global Climate Action Summit is the official summit that's going on that's been arranged to bring leaders and people together from around the world to, uh, as their website says, to take ambition to the next level with respect to climate action. So this is uh, Governor Brown, Michael Bloomberg, delegates from six continents, UN members, UNFCCC leaders, and all will be in attendance. There'll be representatives from Marshall Islands, France, Canada, Mozambique, Sweden, Fiji, and other countries. There'll be various mayors from around the world and more, and hopefully a lot of youth and people from different economic classes and multiple, multicultural groups and various genders, social justice, environmental justice, and environmental protection groups. But um, my husband and I were in, in, in attendance in Paris for this, the historical Paris Climate Agreement, and this will be kind of a similar event. But this is the Global Climate Action Summit that's being set up by our governor. Um, and anybody can attend a myriad of, of those events. But uh, as Martha probably alluded to, I wasn't able to watch your show or listen to your show prior well, to this. She's still on the line with us, so she can chime Good. in here in a minute. Okay, good. Well, I was just going to say that there are people and events happening, people's kinds of events happening all over the world. And so people from all walks of life, you know, want to make certain that, that this summit is going to be meaningful, robust, and will include deep commitments and accountability. So there are going to be numerous people's climate actions separate from this global climate action summit. And this is where Mark and I are going to be concentrating our efforts. And I, I think that I hear Martha talking about the September 8th huge mobilization and day of action on climate change. I think I heard. Yeah, Martha, why don't you chime in here and tell us um, what the difference is between the ones. Uh, it seems like there's two things going on. Can you? Well, yeah. I'm, and I can talk about what we're doing with the people's climate because we're not involved in the Global Climate Action Summit ourselves either. We're involved in the in the people's, you know, we're, we're involved on September 8th and we're involved on September 9th, 10th, and 11th. <laughs> the 14th, and I can talk to you about all the things that we're doing as well. And Martha, are you still with us? Yeah. Um, likewise, I think we're on the same page. The uh, focus of our organizing is the kickoff event, September 8th, California Rise for Climate Jobs Justice, starting a whole exciting week of activities in San Francisco and the Greater Bay Area, all designed to push our leaders to solutions that make more sense, that will take us where we need to go faster, and that do not impact in a, in a bad way the vulnerable communities, the, our union members, the displaced workers, the people who are suffering the most uh, from the climate chaos that we're all experiencing. And I the, think there's a... Right, there's a soil, not oil conference up there, right, right. which uh, is apropos of today's topic, by the way. And that's the 9th, 10th, and 11th, I think. Maybe you can tell us more. Right, right. Well, like Martha said, you know, the, the huge uh, September 8th mobilization, you can go to 350.org or riseforclimate.org and get to an action closer if you can't get to one in San Francisco or if you live out of California, because there already are almost 500 other actions planned in over 70 countries around the world and counting. So most likely, wherever you live in the United States, there'll be an action fairly close to you and many buses available to transport the masses as well. But yeah, Mark and I are going to attend um, a conference called Soil Not Oil on September 9th, 10th, and 11th. There will be numerous indigenous speakers like Tom Goldtooth from Indigenous Environmental Network, uh, quite involved also in Standing Rock. 
Uh, there'll be talks on Keep It in the Ground, Our Children's Trust, um, Eco Village Talks. There's going to be a Women's Earth and Climate Action Network on September 11th. It's a Women's Assembly for Climate Justice Weekend. It's an event. And then we're also attending an event on September 14th, which is called Pathway to Paris, which is an event with Bill McKibben, Patti Smith, Eric Burden, and other musicians and speakers. And I have to throw one in. There's also an event for educators. Uh, I, I just learned about it. I, I just went to the 20th anniversary of Solar Schoolhouse, which is a wonderful ed educational organization. Shout out to them based up near Sebastopol. That's why I was late uh, coming back. But anyway, that is uh, somewhere around the 12th or the 13th. So just check the, you know, check the schedule. There's a big event for educators a major part of one of the days. Well, I want to thank you both for chiming in and letting us know all that's going Could on. Could I just say one more thing? Yeah, we have about 30 seconds more before we have to start there closing. 50, yes. yes, great. There are 50 labor organizations and worker centers who are supporting the march on September 8th. It's been a real uh, rank-and-file effort to get union support for this. We ask everyone who's within a day's driving distance to please come on September 8th and attend all the wonderful events that you've all you've all talked about. Good. And may I add, add one more thing? Mm -hmm. I, I, I think, you know, that Martha and we've all alluded to this, but we've got to keep the pressure on because this is the main way that we can get these positive changes to happen and make a better world so that the next seven generations plus, plus, plus of all people and living organisms can thrive. So we would love to see people get involved as they are able and take action between the 8th and the 14th of September. And visit these different websites and there's yeah. even a green film festival as well cool and and Thank it's two you. months until the most important election in the history of the human race but anyway uh we got to move on now to the oddball stuff but thanks you folks for calling in and thanks again to danny paul nelson um just a little bit of stuff from the sky to report to you thank uh, you martha and Kristen. <laughs> yeah thank you thanks thank for calling you. in and we'll see you up there or maybe on the way up there <laughs> um yeah the mercury you don't often get to see the planet mercury and it's having one of its best appearances of the year in the early mornings now you got to get up before dawn and around santa cruz has been kind of foggy lately but anyway look for that it's right near a bright star the heart of leo the lion regulus so uh and that'll be down below the gemini twins which are over to the left of orion <laughs> nobody needs to orion's the one with the three stars in a row on his belt and finally we're having the children's moon now we're at a phase of the moon where you can see the moon in the sky in the morning in the daylight that's called the children's moon another riddle for you folks why do they call it the children's moon i have my own theory that fits for me but i'm not sure if it's the official one but anyway look for the children's moon <laughs> this week during the mornings uh, so i think we're pretty much out of time but uh thanks to rachel for putting up with everything and uh, keep an eye on the sky, everybody. This is Joe Jordan, and thanks to Tommy, our intern. And this has been Planet Watch for another week with your hosts, Rachel Ann Goodman and Joe Jordan. You can catch our podcast at planetwatchradio.com. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening.